chapter 5, Romans the 5th chapter. Romans chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 11 today. All this just for us. All this just for us. Now, this uh, passage of Scripture, I think, uh, goes uh, with many other passages, uh, any great passages of Scripture, like Isaiah 53, Psalm 23, and Hebrews 11, uh, Philippians chapter 4, John chapter 3. Those are all great. Uh, And this, I think, Romans chapter 5 fits right in with those, uh, if you would want to put it in a, a category of greatest chapters in the Word of God. <coughs> Excuse me. All these passages have long brought a lot of comfort to the hearts of, of believers and, and people before. Now, the last time we saw some of the great benefits of salvation and why true believers can rejoice. And so let's just look briefly at what we called our possessions as believers. Now we saw this last Sunday, acceptance with God. This means, or this is called peace with God that we saw in verse 1. We can have wonderful peace knowing we are accepted of God. We also have access to God. We see this in verse 2. Saw that this uh, means we can enter into the presence of the King. Uh, we have assurance of salvation. We also saw this in verse 2, noted that this assurance is twofold. There is assurance here, grace wherein we stand, and assurance hereafter in the hope of the glory of God. This is the same hope that Paul talked about to the young preacher by the name of Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Because of this twofold assurance, uh, we noted that this gives us a great support for the doctrine of the security of the believer. Uh, We are eternally secure now, and we will be eternally secure after we leave this old earth. We also looked at the ability to triumph in troubles. We noted this in verses 3 through 5. We saw we have an ability to rejoice in trials, to recognize trials, to rest even in trials. Why? Because we have a wonderful love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, in the next uh, several verses, verses 6 through 11, we find the Apostle Paul is still rehearsing the benefits that are ours as children of God. These verses make plain the great provisions that have come our way through the death of the Lord Jesus and by virtue of our Uh, placing our faith in Him for salvation. These verses tell us of the wonderful things we have in Christ. Now I want to draw our attention, particularly right now, to verse 8. Verse 8, and notice the last phrase of that verse, and particularly look at the last two words. Christ died for us. For us. Those are the two words there. For us. These two words sum up the content of our study this afternoon. And we're going to look at all this just for us. 
Notice, first of all, man's hopeless condition. In verse 5, Paul tells us that man's condition can be summed up by four descriptive terms. Phrases, terms, uh, however you want to look at it. But in verse uh, 6, without strength. Also in verse 6, ungodly. And then in verse 8, a sinner. And in verse 10, enemies. Uh, These four terms describe the condition of all men who are lost in sin. Uh, This is man's portrait of humanity apart from, from God. We'll take a few minutes and just look at man's hopeless condition. Notice, first of all, man is weak. Verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The idea here of, of without strength means powerless. He speaks of people who are utterly helpless with no means of escape. And the idea is that the lost sinner stands before God with absolutely no ability to change what he is. We are powerless to escape sin, to escape death, to resist the devil, to please God in any way. And the whole essence of this statement is that man is unable to change his sinful nature by his own effort. He's totally without strength and weakened by his sins. Secondly, we see man is wicked. That's uh, what we get through the word ungodly in verse 6. This word refers to those who are without reverence or fear of God. Literally meaning to live your life as if God didn't exist. Because we are helpless to change our our sinful nature, uh, we live our lives as we please without regard for God and for His law and will. And so to be ungodly does not mean that one must wallow in sin. An unsaved church member is just as godless as a a wicked dictator like Adolf Hitler was. When a person refuses to bow before the Lord in salvation, he's essentially setting himself up as his own God. And therefore, he does as he pleases. He worships himself without regard to the true God. He is godless, ungodly. That's the word here. And then thirdly, a man is wayward. That's what we get in the word sinners in verse 8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word sinners there means to miss the mark. Uh, We're familiar with uh, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the idea there uh, with this word here, to miss the mark. It carries the idea of the archer aiming at the bullseye to the best of his ability, shooting his arrow, and then missing the whole target. That's the way I shoot. Um, Anyway, uh, that's the idea here of uh, missing the mark. Uh, It pictures a man as he tries and fails through life. Uh, No matter how good he tries to be, he can never be good enough. And though he may aim high, set his high standards, and still he falls short of God's standards, and man always misses the mark. This is why attempting to get to heaven by good works will never work, and man will never be good enough to get himself to God. No matter how close he comes, he'll always fall short. To be almost right is to be forever wrong. So that's the third idea here. Man is weak, man is wicked, man is wayward, and then fourthly, man is warlike. 
In verse 10 it says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled by, to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The word enemies there is the word we're interested in. It means an adversary. And basically what the Bible is telling us is that when we're lost, we're in the devil's camp. We're opposed to God and we're an enemy of God. No matter how much a man might talk about loving the Lord, if that man is unsaved, he's a liar. God says the lost are his enemies. Now I hope you can see that people apart from Jesus are in a hopeless situation. Man is weak, he's wicked, he's wayward, he's warlike. It's hopeless. The fact is, there is no hope in man. All hope will only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a sinner, man is totally hopeless and helpless before the Lord. He needs something that uh, he can never produce from within himself. He needs help. And his help must come from the only source that can provide it, and that is God. But God, or man, is God's enemy. But thank God there's more to the story than that. So, we see man's hopeless condition... We see, secondly, Christ's boundless compassion. Now, if we go back to verse 6 and 7, we see his compassion exceeded the love of man. Again, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Now, someone might say, well, God is love. And I can agree with that. But what if they went on to say, God saved me by his love? I would have to say, I disagree with that. Now, that may seem a little startling to a great many people today. But actually, God does not save you by his love. You see, God is more than love. He's holy and He's righteous. God cannot open the back door of heaven and slip sinners in under the cover of darkness. And He can't let down the bars of heaven and bring sinners in. If He does, He's no better than a crooked judge who lets a criminal get off scot-free. God has to do something for the guilt of sinners. There must be judgment. However, God does love us. And regardless of who you are or what you have, God loves you. Now, it's wrong to say to children, Now, Billy, if you're mean and if you do what's wrong, God won't love you. You don't tell your children that. The interesting thing is that God loves little Billy, regardless of what he does. And he loves you and he loves me, regardless of what we do. You can't keep God from loving you. Now, you can get to the place that you do not experience the love of God. For instance, you can't keep the sun from shining. But you can get out from under the sunshine. You can put up an umbrella of sin. You can put an umbrella of indifference. You can put up the umbrella of stepping out of the will of God, which will keep His love from shining on you. And although these things will remove you from experiencing God's love, you know what? He still loves you. He still loves you. Now where in the Bible does it say God saves by love? I don't think you'll find it. 
But the word of God does say, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now, God saves you by his grace, not by his love. You say, well, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, did it say God so loved the world that he saved the world? No. No, he couldn't. A holy God has to be true to his character. But he did do this. He loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, would have everlasting life. You see, God demonstrated his love for you in that he gave his son to die for you. He paid the penalty for your sin. And our holy God can save you if you come his way. Of course, you'll have to come his way. Now, there's a mistaken idea today that you can come your own way. But this isn't your universe, is it? It's God's universe. Uh, You and I can't make up the rules. We like to try sometimes, don't we? But God makes the rules. And he says no man comes to him except through Christ. Now, Paul tells us there are a few people in life that men might die for. And who would those people be in your life? Perhaps it would be a mother or a father or a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or even a few close friends. If you really take the time to think it through, there's probably only a very few people for whom you would give your life without a moment's hesitation. Imagine you're eating a meal in a restaurant with your son and suddenly a gunman enters the place, begins to shoot the people around you. What is your immediate response? Hide under the table? Try to get away? Attempt to overpower the gunman? Or somehow protect your son? Well, for a man by the name of James F. Kidd, he was from Wheaton, Illinois, the answer was easy. He was visiting his son, who was uh, stationed at Fort Bragg, and then went to a nearby Italian restaurant to eat. And while they were eating, the gunman entered in the building and began firing into the customers. And when it was over, 11 people had died, including James Kidd. And when the shooting started, he had used his own body to shield his son from the bullets. And he himself had died from a gunshot wound in the back. Later, his wife said this. He was a good man, a good father, and a good husband. He died saving his son. What more can I say? Another true story involves two miners who were trapped in a cave-in. They were trapped in the mine. They had two oxygen masks, but one was damaged. Only one of these men would be able to get out alive. One of the miners, a single man, handed the good mask to the other miner and said, Here, you take it. You've got a wife and children. I don't have anybody. I can go. You've got to stay. And we've all heard stories of soldiers who've given their lives for their comrades. Maybe a grenade was thrown in the midst of a patrol and one of the men would fall on the grenade and absorb the blast with his body. He would be blown to pieces, but the rest of the men would live. And all of these are examples of rare courage and sacrifice. And yet they all have one common theme. They demonstrate the human capacity to give ourselves for the sake of those we love. Family, friends, fellow soldiers, 
You know, that's one thing. But imagine giving your life for an enemy. Human love has its limits, thankfully. The love of God does not. Verse 6 tells us that this is exactly what Jesus did. He didn't die for the good. He died for the ungodly. Do you know anyone that you would die for? Could you put upon the fingers of one hand those you are willing to, who are willing to die for you? And by the way, could you put upon one finger those who love you enough to die for you? Well, certainly you could put upon one finger because God loved you so much, He was willing to die for you. And if necessary, He would appear today to die for you again if it would take that to save you. He loves you that much. His compassion exceeded the love of men. Notice, secondly, his compassion exhibited the love of God. Verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice how the love of God transcended anything humanity is able to produce. He put his great love on display when Jesus Christ died for those who were yet sinners. You see, while we are still weak and wicked and wayward and warlike, Jesus died for us. He did not die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He did not die for people who loved him, but he died for the very people who crucified him. He died for the ungodly, not for good boys and girls, but for ungodly sinners, those who actually were his enemies, who hated him, to whom he said when they were crucifying, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You and I were numbered among the ungodly that day. If we go back to the restaurant near Fort Bragg, notice, or suppose the young soldier is a total stranger. What if James Kidd protected a total stranger? Or what if instead of a grenade being thrown into the midst of a marine patrol, it had been thrown into the middle of a group of Al-Qaeda soldiers guarding an American prisoner? Suppose an American soldier who had been abused and beaten and was permanently scarred and disfigured by his captors fell on that grenade and gave his life to save his enemies. You see, you say, people just don't do that. That's right. Human nature recoils at the thought of doing something like that for one's enemy. And yet, while man doesn't do that, God does. And that's exactly what happened at Calvary. Jesus Christ died for the sins of his enemies. He threw himself on the grenade of God's wrath, and when it detonated, he died to deliver those who hated him. What love, what boundless compassion. And may we never look at this crazy, confused world and say, well, if God is a God of love, then why do bad things happen? You see, that's foolishness. I like what Pastor Shetler of campus church in Pensacola said at my son and daughter's graduation, Jake and Anna, as he was challenging the graduates and their families to live for God of the Bible, he said something to the effect, 
If you say what a, that a God of love wouldn't allow the terrible things to happen that are happening today, then your God is not the God of the Bible. And this, is just, this is just a God that you've made up in your mind. You know, there were a lot of people worshiping, there are a lot of people today worshiping a God that they just have made up in their mind because their God is not the God of the Bible. They don't know God's Word. They don't read God's Word. They don't obey God's Word. But they think they know who God is, and they're wrong because they're following, not following the God of the Bible. Now, if there's a doubt in your mind as to the love of God, I challenge you to take a look back at the place called Calvary. There you see a holy and a sinless God, the Creator, dying for the creature that hates Him, And you watch as the life leaves his body and you watch as the blood runs uh, down the cross and you listen as the blood drips in the great pools on the ground and you hear him as he gasps his last breath and gives his life as a sacrifice for sin. And you look at that broken, bleeding form hanging there lifeless on the cross and you tell me that God doesn't love you. There never has been or never will be a greater demonstration of of God's love than that broken, dead Savior on a bloody cross. He died for you, and He died for me. And that's where God's revealed His love. He doesn't save you by His love. He saves you by grace because the guilt of sin has been removed by the death of Christ, and He can hold out His arms and He'll save you today. So we see man's hopeless condition. We see Christ's boundless compassion. And then thirdly, we see our matchless completion. And verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. In these verses, Paul tells us we have become what we have become through the selfless sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Because he loved us when we were unlovable, we've received much blessings and some blessings from him that we need to know about. I want you to notice the much more than. That's a very interesting phrase there in verse 9. Much more than. We have been completed in Him. Notice what we have. Again, our position. Uh, We saw this last week in the first few verses, but we see it again here in verse 9a. uh, Being now justified by His blood. We have covered this word as I said before. Basically, the word uh, justified means not guilty. Declare a person not guilty. Even though we are sinners and we deserve to go to hell, God is able through the blood of Christ to look at us and declare us righteous and says that's pleasing in His sight. We're accepted by God. He sees us as if we had never been stained by sin. He sees us like He sees His Son, perfect, And fully right within himself. Notice also our protection in the second part of verse 9. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. Saved from wrath. 
Because we are in Jesus, we're protected from the wrath of God. And simply put, no child of God never need ever fear dying and go to hell. Jesus has already paid the price. He's quenched the wrath of God. Now, the wrath mentioned here is the wrath that the prophets spoke of. For instance, in Zephaniah 1.15, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Well, that really describes it. What is that great day of wrath? Well, the Lord Jesus called it the great tribulation. Paul tells us, That believers shall be saved from wrath. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. He constantly saving us today from the power of sin. And he's going to save us in the future from the presence of sin. That means every believer will leave this earth at the rapture. We'll escape the day of wrath. Not because we're worthy, but because we've been saved by the grace of God. We've been saved by grace. And so we're to live by grace. And 10 billion years from today, we'll still be in heaven by the grace of God. We're saved from wrath through Him, through Christ. Now no longer does wrath of God abide on us. John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. No longer are we the children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. No, we are free from the penalty of sin through the blood of the Lamb. Notice also our, not only our position and our protection, but our peace. Our peace in verse 10. For if when we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Reconciled is the key word there. Word means to take enemies and make them into friends. I don't know if that's a dictionary definition, but that's a, that's a meaning of the word there. Take enemies and make them into friends. No longer are we in opposition to God. We've been brought together through the blood of Jesus. God has called a truce and put away the battle flags. We're no longer fighting, but we're at peace with God. In fact, our relationship is so close that He is ever with us and we have a direct, unimpeded access to His very throne. We are at peace with God. Then we notice our preservation. Verse 10 again Much more being reconciled, we have been saved by this life. Saved by his life. These words tell us that Jesus is alive right now. Nothing to do with the life he lived here on earth. Has everything to do with the life he lives in heaven today. And because he lives, you and I have absolute security as believers. Nothing can ever come between us and God. Because Jesus is standing up on our behalf. Notice Two great texts, I believe, that bear this out. Number one is he is our advocate in 1 John 2, 1. My children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When we're accused before God, the Lord Jesus takes our part before the bar of heaven. He stands up for us as our defense attorney, and he pleads our case. 
And he shows the father his wounds and he tells the father we're his children. And the father responds, case dismissed. But he's also our intercessor. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's praying for us. He's praying for you and me as we journey uh, toward our heavenly homes. And I'm glad uh, for everyone that prays for me. I'm glad for that. But you know what I'm really glad for is that Jesus Christ is praying for me. He's my intercessor. We have a prayer partner. And in our praise, we see in verse 11, not only so, but we also joy in God. That's because these things are true. We can rejoice because we're saved and secure in our salvation. We should be filled with praise to the king. If there was ever a reason to praise God, God has given you that right here as we look at these verses. We joy in God. I think this is the most wonderful statements we have in Scripture. It means that right now, wherever we are, whatever our problems are, whatever uh, we are... Uh, was happening to us, we can rejoice in God. Just think of it. You can rejoice that He lives and He's is who He is. You can rejoice because He's provided salvation. He's willing to save us sinners and bring us to His pres- into His presence someday. We ought to have a joyful heart. Now this may be a difficult time for you as a believer. You may feel there's no reason to Praise the Lord. But if you're saved, then you have every reason to praise Him. And then our privilege. Verse 11 again, it says, By whom we have now received the atonement. We've been given the atonement. The phrase reminds us that we've been made one with God. Think of it. Old, lost, hell-bound sinners have been brought into a personal relationship with the God of heaven. It isn't just any relationship, that of a father and a child. We've been brought nigh or near to God through the blood of Jesus. Ours is a great privilege that we should, be, uh, should not take for granted. Now, I look at these verses and I marvel that God would do all this for just us. Just for us. But He did. As we come to the Lord's table this, uh, this afternoon, these are things that we can rejoice in. Our blessings are far greater than the mind could ever comprehend. And so in light of these truths, I ask you, where do you stand with the Lord this afternoon? Are you saved? Are you close to God as you need to be? Are you guilty of being in love with Jesus with every fiber of your being? We should be. He should fill our hearts. If other things have begun to crowd him out, then we need to let him have his rightful place in our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we...